I'd like to welcome to the show um, Lou, aka Hundred Days of Summer. How are you today, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How about yourself? Not too bad, man. Not too bad. Just uh, thank. First off, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, I, I've really over these last couple of weeks, I was kind of telling you before we kind of hopped on. I've been trying to learn as much as I can about different perspectives within uh, a this entire world. You know what I mean? I've watched a lot of your videos and a lot of what I've done. Um, you know, research-wise about you, I've learned so much and, and and understand some of the perspectives a little bit different. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show. So maybe you can talk a little bit about those. We'll go in those a little bit later. But um, so again, thank you for coming on the show today. I'm I'm not sure if you're hearing it on your side, but there's there's a there was a lot of distortion there. Can you hear me? Oh, can you hear me now? Or yeah, it's better now. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's see. Here. All right. So before we kind of get into the the uh, big topics, um, I kind of mm -hmm. wanted to kind of pick your brain about how you kind of got into the music business. Okay. Uh, man, I've been rapping since. Well, I, I don't since I was a kid. Since I was about eight years old. Um, my, my brother, um, who is his deceased now, but one of the, actually one of the last things he did was he wrote a rap for me and he gave it to me and he said, finish this. And that was like the beginning of me rapping. You know what I mean? I feel like that's one of the greatest gifts that he gave me, um, started me off that way. And then it kind of progressed and progressed. Then I, I started going to church at 19 and I started doing gospel rap. Then, um, I left the church after about 10 or 11 years and, started doing music again. But at that time I had gained the experience of being an internet marketer. So I knew how to promote my music at that point. And yeah, I, I used a little tactic that I learned from Robert Kiyosaki, one of his books, and was able to get a, like millions and millions of people exposed to my music for free. And at that point, you know, just trying to grow my brand and stuff. But it's, it's honestly, it's, it's a passion. I like to do it, but I don't, it's not, it's not how it used to be. Like, I'm not hungry to be famous or get my music heard or anything like that. I was literally just using it so that people would gravitate to me so that I could finally talk to people about things that I thought was actually important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I was listening to one of the posts that you had posted on Instagram, and it really kind of resonated with me, and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. You kind of used this analogy um, that nobody is sympathetic when a black man is killed and you were using that analogy, comparing it to like a dog mm -hmm. and how people care more <laughs> about that. Yeah. And, and, and how black people fit this mold and this brand in yeah. your opinion, how do black people change that brand? So, sorry. So there's, there's two aspects that I'm going to say about that because one, my perspective of that has shifted some. Okay. It shifted some because I, when I first said that, that was I was on 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 my Instagram live and people were asking me to talk about George Floyd, without me actually looking at to the looking at the video, looking into any of the situation. I just went on a rant talking about you know basically why people get away with police brutality, and at that time I I really hadn't done any research to look into the situations to at, other than the mainstream narrative. So what I was speaking on there was actually from that place of uh, not understanding. 
but what what at the time what I was saying was basically like you like you said that you know if we could rebrand ourselves like puppies or babies because people care when something happens to them but right now I felt like at that point I felt like we were re, we were branded as like spiders people attack spiders viciously you know whether the spider is going to cause them harm or not which t- 10 out of 10 times is not going to do anything to them but they're going to attack it viciously so that's how I was seeing the world seeing us but then the response to George Floyd happened and the entire world wore t-shirts, created art, you know, protested in other countries where they don't even know who the man is or anything about the story. They just know the the, the narrative. And, and basically the entire world was like, we care about y'all. We're sorry that this is happening to you. So at that point, I was like, wait a minute. You know, all the, the companies stood up and were like, we're going to pledge this much. We're going to pledge this much. All the actors and stuff, I take responsibility and, and everyone doing what they're doing. I'm like, wait a second. We've already been rebranded. Like through this narrative, we've been rebranded as victims. You know what I mean? We've been rebranded as oppressed. We've been and everyone feels the responsibility now to try to come in there and try to fill that void. And my narrative on that, my mental narrative on that has now changed because I'm I'm listening to totally different content from people who have actually achieved in, in the face of real systemic racism you know real systemic on the book racism like i and it's changed my perspective on us and our potential and now i still think that we need to be rebranded but in a different way so we need to be rebranded to see ourselves as not being oppressed as our disparities not being based on discrimination or bias or any of that type of stuff and we need to also do our own research as opposed to just believing the narratives and the one-sided um narrative on social media as well do you think one of the biggest things that we tackle daily is the lack of knowledge yes and uh, and i think uh, honestly i'm going to say the lack of knowledge but i think the biggest thing that we have to tackle is the misinformation because that seems to be the the thing that you know when if i i've had this conversation with a few of my family members now i've had it with a bunch of people on instagram and it's everyone has a narrative about certain things that just isn't true when you just go and do the, do your own research. But I can't blame them for seeing seeing things the way that they see it when it's shaped that way by the people who create our media. When they when they're able to take a certain clip that they know creates a certain perspective and put that out there into the atmosphere, I can't blame people for believing it because we're supposed to trust these people, right? You know what I mean? And it just doesn't seem to really be helping us. Absolutely, because we we live in a day and age of social media where we see a Facebook post and our first reaction is, I went through something like this the other day. I saw a Facebook post, or I mean, I saw a tweet and it just said something, right? And I got mad, right? I didn't click the article. I didn't go into the article. I just got mad because of the headline. I get in a text message conversation with some friends. I'm like, oh my God. A couple hours later, I click the article, I read it, and it's the complete opposite of what this person said. Wow. And that to me is obviously I'm I, I own that, right? You know what I mean? I own that. And to me, I think that's another thing that we do. We could have a headline, let's just hypothetically say, even when we take the debate, right? Mm. Trump did not denounce white supremacy on the stage, right? And obviously everybody, including yourself and some other people have pointed out, well, what about this a couple of weeks earlier when he stated this, right? But all the headlines state, he didn't denounce it on this stage. The the misinformation is troubling, correct? Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) And 
<laughs> and it, you're right. It's it's kind of like when people paint the narrative of, you know, cops are out there to serve and protect and not kill, right? Mm -hmm. Understandable. The media is supposed to be out here to give us the information, right? And not the misinformation. Exactly. And we're being flooded with all this misinformation. Yeah. So I was one of those people. The George Floyd incident happened, um, which still it, one of the most traumatic things I've ever watched. Yeah. Do you think yeah. people took George Floyd's death and it exploited it for things that it really wasn't? Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, I've seen it. So I, I've saw I, I didn't even know. All right, so at that time, that that situation kind of woke me up because that was the first time I realized that every time you see the situation, it's always a white police officer killing an unarmed black person. That's when I went to go and look to see if any unarmed white people were actually killed. Because at the time, I didn't believe it was happening. Because why would that happen if cops only kill us because of our skin color, right? They're afraid of us. That's why they're ready to shoot us when there's no threat. That's That was the, the place that I was living under. So when I saw, when I went and looked at the actual statistics and the numbers, that's when I realized, wait a minute. Why do they only show us this then? Because I, I do marketing. I do advertising. So I understand that, you know, you create a moral to the story in a, a very invisible way, you know what I mean? So some, somebody, some people might not be, <laughs> so it's like, I understand that there's a point to this. So I'm like, well, why are they only showing us this? At the time, I really didn't understand. So I asked people on Instagram. And um, of course, a bunch of people attacked me. A bunch of people attacked me, more attacks than, you know, and I asked for names. I'm like, does anybody know of any unarmed white people killed by the police? Out of the hundred or so, it might've been 200 comments that I got, I got three names, three. And those names were from like 2016, 17, but none of them were from, you know, 2019 or 2020. So, but there was someone who DM'd me a screenshot that was very eye-opening. They showed me that Black Lives Matter, the term, Black Lives Matter protest, the term, um, and Black man shot, all trend, all began trending upwards last election cycle the exact same time that it was trending this year. So it was around July last year, July in 2016. It was uh, around June this year. So the it ramped up around the exact same time where it hit its peak. And someone says, this is what, you know, the Democrats like to do towards elections, where they'll basically highlight and um, give like overbearing news coverage to topics uh, about racism and making it seem as if racism is the, the most dangerous thing for black people during this time and that they will be the ones who fight against it. Because obviously what everybody believes is the Republicans are the racist party, the Democrats are the party of social justice. And when they said that to me, I, I honestly didn't believe it because I'm like, you, no one would be that crazy, no one's that sadistic just to get votes. I, right. I can't see that. I'm like, especially when, of course, we're going to vote Democrat. You, it's like, that's not a question. You know, I've never questioned that before. Everyone that I know is like, yes, the Democrats, the Democrats, the Democrats. So I'm like, they won't have to go that hard. Yeah. Come to find out, <laughs> actually, they do. That's like I, I, I found a book by a guy named Manning Johnson called Color, Communism and Common Sense. This guy was a former communist, a black communist, and he was an agitation propaganda director. That's what he did was create propaganda that enhanced or intensified racial tension. Because the point was to, you know, cause a type of um, civil war in a sense so that the outsides could come in and take over. 
Right. And he says the exact same thing in his book, that media gives specific coverage to racial incidents or ones that can be interpreted as being racial. And um, northern white northern politicians capitalize on that propaganda to get black votes. And that book was written in 58. He started he was he entered the Communist Party in the 30s or something like that. So I'm like he, wow. he was giving up the strategies. So I'm like, whoa, he's saying the same thing the guy in my DM said. I'm like, maybe there is something to this thing. And that's when I started looking more into it. And it's crazy what I found. Absolutely. So for me, I you you for me personally, when I say when I say the term black lives matter, I mm -hmm. I mean genuine black lives, right? I mean right. the the misconception of the narrative is is you have on one side you have the Black Lives Matter organization, right? Mm -hmm. Which in my research, I have found that it is kind of like what 90% of the other organizations in society that yeah. are broken, that are just set up for collecting money, right? right? But on the flip side of it, I see, I went down Nashville, protested, very peaceful, very honest, very just personal okay. conversations that we had with all sorts of different kind of individuals. How do we get the narrative of Black lives, how do we separate that? How do we separate the Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter organization? That's that's the thing. I, I think that, to be honest with you, I don't. I honestly don't think that you can because one of the things, like, so, like I said, when I, when I read this book, the exact same things that Manning Johnson details as far as what his movement was, because he was the organizer of the movement, but the movement is literally fulfilling the agenda of the organization and it's using very earnest people people who are same way how i felt when i saw george floyd same way how you felt when you saw george floyd but the narrative that is shaped is what creates that feeling in us that that is happening that happens it doesn't happen as often as they make it seem that it happens it's not an epidemic it's not the number one cause of black people being killed though that is the narrative that they are shaping now, under that narrative, everyone needs to be out in the streets. But under the true narrative, we have other issues that we could actually put our, our resources, our time, our energy, and our conversations into. And that that I know for the, for a lot of people, that's going to sound very insensitive. I, I hate to say it because I know what I'm going up against. But when right. you look at the numbers, so so there was a, like, say, for example, there was a survey done in 2015 by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Now, according to that survey, and they, they use a sample group to get this, this larger number, but according to that survey, African-Americans had around 6.1 million interactions with the police, 6.1 million. Out of that 6.1 million, there were 78 unarmed black people that were killed that year. So 78 unarmed black people out of 6.1 million interactions. That kills the narrative that there is an epidemic. Do unarmed black people be kill get killed by the police? Yes, they do. That same year, 91 unarmed white people were killed by the police. So if everyone wants to get together because because a, uh, about a thousand or tw to twelve hundred people are killed by the police, period, regardless of your color. If everybody wants to get together and march over that, I'm all for that, because that's based on logic. That's based on statistics and, and facts. But to, to have people out in the streets, not because I understand you said that your your protest was peaceful. In Philadelphia, where I come from, they they destroyed everything, you know, over this narrative. And for me, that is unacceptable, especially because it's like you said, you get that one narrative that invokes emotion. And some people don't don't take it as as 
peacefully as I would like everyone to. And they right. get into the streets and then more people die. Businesses are burnt down as well as neighborhoods, which puts those in the neighborhoods in an even worse situation economically, which is going to make more crime. The police are afraid to be called racist, so they back off more crime. And that, that doesn't help anybody at the end of the day. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't help anybody. And, and it, it demonizes the same people that you're supposed to be looking for for help because of one narrative that is really just highlighting something that is a very uh, small situation compared to what they're trying to make it out to be. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, and then if you look at, so my question to you, I guess, is this, all right, so you hear the, the term oppression, you hear the term systematic racism. Mm -hmm. For me, those, those terms aren't, um, those are very demonizing terms, right? And, and when you think about stuff like that, we still live in a society where there is obstacles placed in front of you. Do you, you still feel that way, correct? Honestly, no. No. Honestly, okay. no. Be, and, and I attribute that to people like Tom Soul, Walter E. Williams, Jason Riley, and one of the people's least favorites, Larry Elder, right? People don't like him for some reason. But the other ones are, are very, um, well, I mean, they're all honored. People just don't know the other ones to demonize them, but people know Larry Elder. So when you listen to these men talk, and they all are kind of like they get their information from people like Tom Sowell, Walter E. Williams. When you listen to those guys, what they do is they add, they they give you actual data that backs up disparities. And the, the they, they're looking to see if it's actual bias or if there's another reason for it, right? So one of the one of the, the examples would be how Black people as a whole don't um, earn as much income as white people as a whole. Now, if you break that down to specific black ethnic groups, as opposed to lumping everybody in the same category, you're going to see a totally different picture. You're going to see Nigerian Americans doing better than a lot of other ethnic groups. You know what I mean? So it's in, in a sense like that. You're going to see people who come from the Caribbean doing a lot better than people who are African-Americans born in America. That So when you break those groups down, you see a total different situation. But as long as you can lump them all in, they're going to get a different picture. Now, if you lump them all in, even still, the fact is the African-American race is younger than the white race. So what, what, what you have there is that means that, that we wouldn't have as much experience, as much time in the job field to be able to earn as much. But when you actually measure everything equally, when you say, OK, let's measure the group that has all this in common with this group that has all the same things in common and then see if we see a disparity. A lot of times black people are actually doing better. And, but no one says that part of the story because not every no one's obviously I don't nobody know wants to hear that. Nobody wants exactly. to hear that. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't it's fit the narrative of what they're, they're trying to push. Exactly. So to, Tom Sowell has been a very eye-opening person person for me. Very eye-opening. Walter E. Williams, Jason Riley, same thing. Jason Riley has a book called Please Stop Helping Us. And that book is basically showing how when when uh like when LBJ started saying, like, it's not good enough that we just you know, give you equal opportunity. It's not good enough. We need to give you a boost, a head start. We need to push you forward. We need to specifically focus in on you to add, you know, to, to make sure that you win. That actually hurt us. All those programs that were implemented actually began to hurt us in ways that I never even imagined, ways that I attributed to the legacy of slavery. But that's because no one's really teaching uh, the black history, or at least the black history of progression in between the, the first hundred years after slavery up until 1965. No one's no one's teaching that, except right. for a handful of people. 
you know, and when I listen to that information, it, I, it's like I was starving my whole life and didn't know it. And when I listen to these men talk, I, I eat it up. I eat it up because it's very empowering. It shows a whole different perspective on what you can accomplish. And no one will argue the fact and say that America is more racist today than during Jim Crow. But the things that we were doing during Jim Crow lets me know that today I have no right to complain. I, I can do it. My, my dad is from Nigeria. He, he passed away. My dad is, was, was from Nigeria. He came here because he, he thought education was important. Well, I don't think education is important. That's, <laughs> yeah. just, that's how I saw the world. My friend's dad also passed away, but he was from Kenya. He, he used to sit us on the porch and talk to us for three hours. We just trying to get in the house so we can get a dollar to go buy a blunt so we can roll up our weed. That's what we, every single time and he would catch us, have us on the porch and he would talk to us for about three hours, him and his other um, Kenyan friend about how lazy we are because we don't value the opportunities that we have here. And I'm like, don't you know? Cause I'm thinking the same thing. Right. You know what I mean? Oppression. What are you talking about? But, no, where he comes from, he understands true poverty. He understands true lack of opportunity. So what he comes here and sees is a plethora of opportunity. And they all won. My dad graduated and won. His dad graduated and won. They were, I know a lot, most first, first, um, most first generation um, Af Africans, at least, their, their folks are winning. And, and they, the first generation African-Americans, you know, that come from that side all feel overbear you know with with the their parents desires for them to achieve it's it's weird it's weird it's just it's just uh, to me that's just a different a difference in culture absolutely so the one thing that has kind of intrigued me and, and i've heard you say this before um i think it was at the interview with samira and i've seen you say it on a couple other posts when you first decided to start speaking out did you have the concerns of maybe the threats or the I can't believe you're speaking out against us and stuff like that. Or did you just know deep down, like, this is the right thing that for me to do. I don't care. I know I'm going to get blowback, but I don't care. Yeah. It for, for a second, for a second, I thought, because even because my, my whole narrative, you know, is, is I relate to myself in the paradigm of being a spirit with a body, not a body with a spirit. So my identity lies. I, I try to keep my identity in, in that paradigm. So when I when I look at situations that way, that's what I want to talk to people about. It's like, hey, man, if you if you understood the spiritual underlying of all this stuff, none of this would make you upset or afraid. But I know I can't just speak to people like that because they haven't taken those steps to get there. It's going to sound insensitive. It's going to sound crazy to some people. So right. instead, I sit back. I listen to what people say and I try to interject certain things and, and that would make them think as opposed to just react. And but when I saw those numbers, when I got to the statistics of the unarmed white people versus black people, that's when I knew I had to say something, because this it isn't just, you know, we need not fear racism because we don't die. You can't die. You need not fear racism because you can actually create your own life through vision. You know what I mean? And so it and I've never felt with hell. I've never felt like anything could ever stop me. I've been an Internet marketer full time since about 25 and I'm 37 now. So when I, I, I've always felt like I could succeed regardless of whatever the economy is going through, whatever. So when I, when I look at that situation, when I saw the statistics, that's when I was like, no, nah, we're being manipulated. This I need to speak on because I think people need to know this because if they knew more unarmed white people were killed than us, maybe they wouldn't think that it was a racial issue. 
maybe then they would question, why don't we ever hear about them? Why is that never on the news? Why don't those videos ever go viral? Making it seem as if it only happens to us. So that's that's when I knew I had to speak. Now, I did sit there and think for a second, like, wow, I'm doing well. I just got my blue check. <laughs> I, know I got these followers. Like, there's been celebrities that have come to my page and, and thanked me for some of the videos I've done in the past. And I'm like, I could lose all of that. Right. But at the end of the day, I always say integrity is its own reward. I need to be able to live with myself. I need to be able to sleep at night and find peace within. I need to know that I'm basically accomplishing the mission that I feel like I'm here to do. And that ain't to make people feel happy. That ain't to coddle people. That ain't to, you know, tickle people's ears. It's, it's to say what needs to be said. And I learned that last year. It's like every time I had a message I was afraid to post. I would take forever to write the caption because I'm always trying to explain and defend myself first. And, yeah. and it got to the point where I would just start putting faces and emojis instead and just post it. And I would be so drained from it, I would have to take a nap and not wake up and, oh, wow, everybody agrees. Oh, wow. Yeah. But in this case, it was the opposite. But I, I didn't stop because I, I, I really believed in what I was doing. You know what I mean? People accuse me of getting paid getting paid by the Republicans or something like that, or getting paid by Fox News or whatever they think I'm trying to do is, is ironic that the same people that, that the same people who don't want to be looked at as a monolithic block are literally judging me <laughs> for being different. <laughs> it's, it's weird. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty crazy. So I, I got a, I got a question for you. Why do you support president Trump? Okay. All right. So the, the main reason is specifically because I don't think that he is a racist. And I think that he is being demonized by the media because every time I go and look into anything that they say about him, it's typically the opposite. So that started when when I really didn't care, to be honest with you, because at first I didn't think he was a racist because, I, like I said, I was in the hip hop culture. Everybody loved him. Everybody right. loved him. Right. I can go and find like, say, for example, if, if somebody take a picture, if you could dig up a picture with with Jeffrey Epstein or somebody, you look at that person like, oh, I don't know about him now. That's what people do. Yeah. You take a picture with Lil John and Donald Trump. Nobody's going to look at Lil John and say, maybe Lil John was a closet racist, too. They're not right. going to do that. But all of a sudden, Trump becomes racist because of his narrative. I, I can do a Google search like I can. You can go to Google. There's a certain way you can look at. Um, all the content from a specific year when you do a search. I did that. I did 2000. I think I went all the way to 14, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 2020. And I put Donald Trump and racist. Nothing in 2014, nothing in 2015. And, oh, well, it started to happen towards the end of 2015 after he announced. And then it got even harder in 16, harder in 17, crazy in 18. And it's like, yo, this is crazy like you can literally see it progress simply because he chose to run so when i look at that situation the the main the first time i was actually disappointed in him was the very fine people on both sides right when i saw that 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 clip that's when i was like wow maybe i was wrong about him then i somehow maybe i was doing a search to see if he was racist or not somehow i come across a video um that was saying you need to watch the entire clip i went and watched the entire clip he starts off talking about Antifa. People don't. People didn't even know what Antifa was then. He says, you got the guys on this side with the hats and the clubs. Did you see them? They're wearing all black. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's Antifa. And he goes on to say, um, somebody in the crowd, one of the reporters was like, you said that there were bad people on both sides. 
He was like, yeah, there were bad people on both sides, but you also had very fine people on both sides. And I'm not talking about uh, the white nationalists or the neo-Nazi, they should be condemned totally. And I was like, wait, this must be the cleanup interview. This can't be the same interview that they took the clip from to, to create that narrative. And I went and looked. And I oh no, this is the same interview. This is right afterwards. I'm like, so why didn't they show the part where he condemned him? Had me thinking that he didn't condemn him. Had me waiting for him to condemn them. And I'm like, that right there, that was the first step. Because you don't have to do that to a racist. You just let them talk. You just let a racist person talk. You know, I say that you don't have to let a, I don't know if you, uh, profanity can you be used on here, but you don't let a piece of crap, a piece, you don't have to, you know, you, you just let it stink. That's all you got to do. That's what it does. So I when see. I saw that, that's when I realized, hmm, they creating a narrative. Interesting. And that was before George Floyd. So that once I got to that point there, that's when I was totally done with him. And I'm like, I can't trust y'all worth, worth anything. I got to look at every single situation individually by myself. And at that point, when I when I continue to look, I'm like, wait, there was a time when Jesse Jackson was working with him and he congratulated him for his work in the black community. I'm like, why would he do that if he was racist? Al Sharpton worked with him. Al Sharpton is recorded saying now recently we didn't change. He changed. So wait a minute. You're saying that Donald Trump wasn't always racist. He just became racist when he started running for president. Is that what you're saying? It's like, why, why is none of this information out in the public? And why is this information um, basically just nobody's ever seen it? You know, and even when you present it to people, the, the other narrative is so ingrained in them that they they their perception instantly shapes it in. Oh, that was him just pandering. That was him just. All right. If you say so. But what did he have to gain by pandering back then in the 90s? You know what I mean? It, like I, I posted a video on my stories today in 2000 where he was going to run in the reformer party. And they, he, they, they asked him why. He says, well, the party's collapsing. They say, when you when you say the party's collapsing, what is the main reason you say? He was like, well, you got David Duke just entered the party, a bigot, a racist. That's not the kind of person you want in your party. It's like these are the things that he's been saying forever. No, but no. His his club, the Mar-a-Lago Club, I think that's how you say it in Miami, was the only club allowing blacks and Jewish people into the club back then. It's like no no one brings that type of stuff up when he when he brought when he let Jennifer Hudson I believe that's how you say her name Jennifer Hudson um, live in his in in his uh, Trump Towers or something like that when her parent when her, her mother and her family was killed it's like let her stay there for free nobody th- brings up any of those types of things be- because they believe he's a racist they don't even know those things exist I know I didn't until I went and looked for myself yeah because so, no, nobody I, I don't do that research there. yeah it's it's nobody's willing every exactly everybody's willing to take a clip take it for what it's worth and then run yeah. with it. Right. And I think right. that's, the, I mean, the media as a collective whole struggles at, it's all about clicks. It's all about views. Yeah. It's all about, we know that, you know what I mean? We all, Obviously, you know, that being in the social media game as it is, you know, everybody, it's all about the next click. It's all about the next, yeah. this next, that, but at the same time, that can equally kill a lot of individuals, you know, their mind frame and stuff like that. Yeah. So, my final question for you, this is the last one I like to, to ask all my uh, guests on the show. Okay. When you pass away, what do you want your legacy to be? That, and I like that question. When, when, uh, Kobe, when Kobe passed away, what I said was, I, what I would like is for the energy of my spirit to live on. Like not to be afraid of death, but to be afraid that my life didn't really mean anything. So I, I that's I love that question. What I what I would like people to know, remember about me was that the fact that 
I, I went against the grain in the sense of not just doing it to be popular, but doing it because I thought it was right. Always telling people the truth, whether they wanted to hear it or not, you know, for being candid in that way. And that's that's one of the things like my my one of my closest friends literally just we, we got off of we were actually arguing about systemic racism and stuff on live, but we ended it in peace and in love. And he called me later and he talked to me and he said, you know, I know I can always get that from you. I can't get that from everybody else, but I know I can always get that from you. Whether I want to hear it or not, you're going to tell me the truth. And it ain't it's always truth that helps me. That's that's what I want to be known for. He gave me something that benefited my life. That's that's all I care about. That's how I'm, I'm going to continue to live on. You know, I, I just want to basically be infectious in people's mindsets that create a, a, a system of functionality within them that they couldn't achieve. That's what I want, because I think that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, where can people find you, man, on social media? Um, hundred days of summer, one in hundred days of summer. You can you look that up on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and you'll find me there. Or you could Google me. I'm I'm on Google too, all over Google. So I'll put I'll put all of his information in the uh, in the in the notes here as well, folks. Thank you so much for joining me today, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Most